Welcome to Prison Pipeline, produced at the studios of KBOO Portland. I'm Karen James. My guest is Doyle Smith, Executive Director of DDA of Oregon. Dual Diagnosis Anonymous is a unique 12-step plus 5 recovery program for those experiencing both mental illness and addiction challenges. Welcome, Doyle. Thank you, Karen. It's an honor to be here. So, Doyle, DDA of Oregon, or Dual Diagnosis Anonymous of Oregon, you are helping people with mental illness and addiction in the prison system, in the jails, and you are also a national and international recovery program. But first, let's talk about what is dual diagnosis. Well, dual diagnosis, like it says, is when you're experiencing both mental health challenges and substance abuse and or addictions. And I say that purposely because not all addictions are substances. People with severe and persistent mental health conditions, over 51% of it, according to SAMHSA, are also suffering an addiction diagnosis or substance abuse. And what they're finding out is a lot of the complications with mental health is being exacerbated or managed by chemical dependency um, or behaviors like gambling or eating disorders, things of that nature. Talk about the work of Dual Diagnosis Anonymous. First of all, I just want to point out that I'm not only the executive director for Dual Diagnosis Anonymous of Oregon, I'm also a man in long-term recovery uh, for mental illness and addiction. I say that loud and proud because I'm not my mental illness and I'm not my addiction. This is what's happened to me or what's happening to me. It's also killed my mother and killed my sister. It's damaged a lot of people, friends, family. It's riddled my generations of a family um, from my grandparents, you know, from alcoholism to whatever. And the thing about DDA, and a lot of people call dual diagnosis, DDA short for dual diagnosis anonymous, is that it's being considered a missing link because there's approaches that, you know, people really need for peer support that helps manage these symptoms and or recover from their addictions. And really, you know, I, and not only am I a man of long-term recovery from mental illness addiction, which is my PTSD, anxiety disorder, and attention deficit disorder, and I'm also 29 years clean and sober of no alcohol, no methamphetamine, which I couldn't even get seven days together, much, much less seven months or seven years, now 29. And it's a direct result of working on the mental illness. And that's the case for lots of people that come to DDA. Once they start addressing their mental health issues, the addiction secondary. And sometimes it seems first, but they definitely go hand in hand. You know, the system, whatever system, whether it's in the institutions or outside, aren't focusing on both when there's 51%. And this is conservative, right? 51% of the people they're working with having both, then it's incompetent. It just is. And the thing that really needs to happen after services is this ongoing process because illnesses take time and understanding and I guess traction of different things that have to work for people, especially with mental health issues from trying different medications to different models of approaches. And the thing that seems to be the most successful is when people are helped by a process that's helping meet them where they're at, that's bringing them along, which DDA is considered a peer support model. It's peer ran. In the state of Oregon, it, it's a 501c3 and it's considered a value-based organization. Um, we're not just like 
the other 12 steps. We actually have academics and focus groups that prove the impacts and show, and we reinforce that by things we add to it or the language we use to change. It started when people were being kicked out of 12-step meetings. They were being told they weren't in recovery from their mental, uh, what they're taking mental health meds. Uh, They couldn't talk about their recovery around their mental health issues, only drugs or only alcohol. But that peer support piece that was severely needed and missing, which were helping people, even though they weren't getting it all from 12 steps, was missing and they were being kicked out. You know, it's difficult enough dealing with addiction challenges, but to have mental health challenges on top of this, are people aware that they have both? And how would they know? Well, people don't always know, that's for sure. Um, And if anything, part of, you know, the steps in the recovery process, just like addictions, people will be told, hey, you got a problem with your alcohol use, or you got a problem with your drug addiction. And the phenomenon behind the illness of addiction is denial, right? And so getting people to have doubt or being aware, I guess you would say in in the stages of change, it's pre-contemplation, contemplation. So when you get somebody to contemplate or think that there's an issue around that, I didn't think I had mental health issues that I was going in and out of programs, just addressing the, the addiction piece. And then, but I thought my mental health was normal, right? But it was severely trauma induced. And there was a lot of ADD stuff there, which I was used to. So it didn't seem abnormal. I thought actually everybody else was abnormal. When I realized that it was a big part of why I was using and how it was really maladaptive and not working in my life right, I started taking a look at it. It was the fourth try in treatment when I did my mental health, I don't know, seven years later, um, in and out of relapses, where I finally got the traction I have today in terms of 29 years. But that's the missing link that they talk about in DDA, is that when somebody comes to our groups, it's usually for the five steps, which is the mental health, even though we respect both illnesses equally. Um, The five steps really focus on the mental health, and I'll get more into that later. But people come there and they learn, or they come there because they already know. But it definitely is a process of understanding because of the elements behind it, right? I mean, when you're seeing and hearing things, you're ashamed or stigmatized or it's ostracized. And I have people come to me and they'll say, you know, I'm on medications for this. I know you can't see. I know you can't hear. I'm hearing and seeing it right now, but I know that. It's my reality, not everybody else is around me. And to be able to be honest and open about that, I can actually manage it and people don't get bothered by that. On top of other things that people say in our groups, Um, but you can process stuff in our groups. You can be on medications or not on medications. They're both equally respected. And we don't just do the groups. We do events. Um, We do volunteering, we do things that help involve people in a way to where they're, they're surrounded by similar people, you know, knowing that they're not their mental health issues or their addictions, it's what's happening to them. And it's so stigmatized, it's so ostracized, it's so marginalized, um, you know, and most people that are getting services like this are not being addressed for both. Um, it's so hard, the National Institute of Drug said that people with mental illness and addictions are less likely to adhere to addiction treatment programs, and they have a higher dropout rates than addicts without mental illness that are integrated in the care among primary care providers. So, you know, when you're looking at helping them um, navigate the system, being aware of how their medications are, are, are affecting them or not, you know, there's all these different topics that are in our meetings. 
What does it take to join DDA? A willingness? Uh, you said that you meet people where they are. Talk more about that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, obviously, when people come to DDA or how they get to DDA is either through referrals, through treatment programs, through crisis centers, through jails. But there's a need or a desire of some sort, somebody either pushing somebody towards our direction or somebody really wanting help. You don't come to, you don't even go to treatment because everything's fine, right? It's like, I want to come to treatment. No, something pushed you to come to treatment. Yeah, I'm glad you want to be here. But then you probably are not going to understand what it takes while you're in treatment or in a 12-step meeting like DDA. Because DDA, can I just say the preamble? Because the preamble kind of explains this too. And then I'll say how people can get to us. But DDA's preamble says that DDA is a fellowship of persons who share their experiences, their strengths, their weaknesses, their feeling, fears, and hopes with one another in order to help manage their dual diagnosis and or learn to live at peace with unresolved problems. And the only requirement for membership is a desire to live a healthy, addiction-free lifestyle and help others. And, you know, and, and really there's the, the time thing. We respect the milestones with somebody has got 29 years of recovery. I don't have 29 years away from my mental health issues. Okay. So the time thing is not the emphasis in DDA, even though we're proud of the milestones and we see that as progress, but just for today in DDA is really the emphasis, right? We're managing our symptoms. We're working together. We're figuring this thing out and we're getting through each day with whatever that day brings us in terms of purpose, you know, in terms of spirit, in terms of not being a, a liquid, uh, a substance, a behavior, you know, or a destruction or, you know, I mean, we want to be humans that look back on our lives, and not regret it. And there's so much love in DDA. There's so much non-judgment in DDA. So how you come to DDA is either through our website, just so you know, Karen, since COVID happened, we've gotten over 300 thousand visits to our website, 300,000 visits. We got our, our DDA language translated in about five different languages. We're in Italy, we're in Sweden, we're in London, um, we're throughout the United States, we're in Ireland, we're in Canada. You know, it's just people every day are wanting to be members in our chat room. People every other week, if not every month, are starting a new meeting elsewhere. And it's just Corbett was alive, he would be so proud to see what he started and where it's going. And of course, Corbett Monica, the founder of DDA. Mm-hmm. Why don't you give your contact information right now? Okay, so DDA Inc., that's inc.org. Uh, so it's ddainc.org is our website. You can see with the tabs, you can see in person means, you can see our online means. We have over we have 17 of our own, but there's other places that are doing meetings too that are, I guess, from our numbers, we're getting at least 1,400 people a month attending those 17 groups per week. We have a workbook group study that I do, and we go through the journey to the 12 steps plus five workbook, which has exercises, explains the steps. It talks about the differences with mental health and addictions and how to work the steps to help recover from your substance abuse and addictions or manage your mental health. And um, that's on our ddainc.org website. We also have a DDA chat room called the DDA chat room resource group, which is a members only. If you go on Facebook and you look, look up DDA chat room and resource center, it'll come up. You have to answer these questions to be allowed in. Once you're in, there's so many resources and so many people talking to each other that way as well. But we also hire DDA outreach specialists that have, you know, 24 hours, seven days a week. 
you know, my phone rings off the hook. Um, you know, I give out my cards. We're all part of this solution in terms of meeting people where that and trying to support them as best as we can. But mainly through, through peers, we're not all things to everybody, but we definitely have a network of uh, things we can connect people to. But just to be a listener, just to be present, just to be okay with not judging when somebody's going through their stuff. And then all of a sudden they talk about how it saves their lives later on, or they don't go to the hospital as much. They don't get arrested. They don't go to prison. And then all these things just start developing. And then their, their purpose becomes like, I'm the executive director. You know what I was told when I was growing up that I would never amount to be anybody or anything. And I was flunking the first grade. I was being kicked out of school. I went to an alternative school. And then I ended up facing 20 years and a $200,000 fine for armed robberies, all a direct result from my mental health, my addictions, and my upbringing. And I haven't, you know, I haven't been arrested in over 30 plus years. And that's a direct result of working a program of recovery that anything's possible. People 10 times worse than me have, have gotten better. And this is something that's not my job. It's a purpose. It's it's what we do. It's what we see. It's what we live for. Our board is the same way. We have a, a robust board of directors that, you know, 51% of addictions and mental health is, is 100% employed, pure ran. Um, this is all about figuring it out together and applying a model that we can revise and improve upon over time. You can be anonymous. You don't have to be anonymous. I'm not anonymous, but you, we respect both. There's a process to this. So there's what they call questions and answers and positive feedback is given during the group process. Again, recovery is part of the medication process, if that's your deal. And we work through events and community efforts that help educate and bring people together and teach and learn. We're having a picnic in Multnomah County, our staple picnic. Uh, June 26th at Peninsula Park in North Portland. It's free. It has food. It has raffles. It has games. It has family love and support. And it educates people just knowing that, you know, our stuff's there. People ask about it. Um, Multnomah County sponsoring it. We do one in Clackamas and we do one in Washington County. You talked about the book, and this is a wonderful workbook that uh, you put out, Dual Diagnosis Anonymous, A Journey Through the 12 Steps Plus Five. So we all know about Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous and the 12 steps, but talk more about the plus five steps of Dual Diagnosis Anonymous. You know, the five steps focuses on the mental health management. You know, the first step is about admitting or recognizing or accepting. So it's pretty much just like the first step of any other, you know, you have to identify, right? You have to say, okay, this, there's something going on here. This is, this is happening to me. And some of us are going, okay, I know it's happening to me. You know, like I know I'm an alcoholic or I know I have no health issues. And, and then the second step is be willing to do something about it. Really step forward from that. Okay. Now that I know it, what am I going to do about it? Right. And then the third step is really about, you know, and it, this is about doing, what is it that you're doing something about? Well, it combines the mental health and substance abuse and addictions. And just so you know, you don't have to have substance abuse and or addictions. You can just have the mental health, which I've never really seen somebody just have mental health because there's always behaviors that are kind of addictive. Think about addictions being obsessive compulsive disorder. So if you have an obsessive compulsive disorder, it's, it puts something in your system that's going to make that happen. And there's the addiction. So the, the third step is really about working with your prescriber, working with your clinician, working with your counselor, working a program of recovery around your mental health. The medical model of addiction is 
it's biological, psychological, and social, right? So they look at problem areas in those those three areas and it's chronic and it's progressive and over time it's fatal. So it's ongoing, it gets worse over time, it kills you if you don't arrest it. But the problem areas are physical, psychological, and social. So they're looking at risk factors or all the damage done to those three areas in terms of how they diagnose you. And the psychological part, you know, the amount, I mean, that's it's all combined. So when you're looking at recovery and recovery, you know, I wish you could, I, I hope people could see me, but it's never like a straightforward, you know, it's not like in a vacuum. It's like all over the place learning, right? You know, it's back and forth, up and down, you know, medications, non-medications, you know, that's all part of the process. It's so important to understand that there's no one way for somebody. Recovery is a return to health on a daily basis. Some days are better than others, right? And so the, the, the next step, which the first step is acceptance our understanding. The second step is willingness. The third step is doing the stuff around mental health, whether it's prescriber medications, counseling, all that good stuff. The fourth step is really about not doing it alone. They call it the spiritual step, but really when you involve yourself with a group of individuals, you're never the same again. Um, You're never the same again. Corbett would phrase this. He goes, because of this moment, that we're having right here, right now with my brothers and sisters will never be the same. And we'll always take each other forward from this moment on. And for that, I am forever grateful. But it really is peers helping peers is what helps yourself. I mean, you can't heal unless you're helping others heal. And I, and I mean that, I mean, it's whether it's purposely or non-purposely being in a group because you need to be there, your presence, just your face, your energy, your your expressions actually enforce something in somebody else. And they know that they're not alone, even if it's just two people. Um, so not being alone, fitting in somewhere you never fitted in, being able to process stuff that you've never been able to talk about or understand leads you to the answers or the understanding in terms of what's happening and how to do something about that. That's it. We're lucky to have a name, a model, a place to come. But the magic is the peer support, people fitting together in a way to where they never have been able to before, and they get through it and they get out of it and they come back. Just so you know, going back to a hospital is recovery. If you ever get sick and you go to a hospital, that's smart. But in, you know, and this is not a slam on other 12 step means, but it's ignorance, right? It's like, oh, you relapsed because you went back to a treatment program or you relapsed because you went to the hospital. What? <laughs> you know, that's smart. You know, the best thing I could ever done was gone counseling, um, got counseling and went into treatment programs because each one taught me more and more, even though I didn't keep it together in between those times all the time. The longest I had was 14 months. And I kept beating myself up because I, I thought I wasn't doing good enough in the 12 steps when really it was the 12 steps were not enough. That's how simple it is. When 12 steps are not enough, go to DDA. Number five is being of service. And again, I kind of touched on that. You know, you can't keep it unless you give it away. It's one person helping another. You know, that's one of the models and all the other 12-step stuff. And to be of service reinforces, it teaches, it brings things to you that you can't explain or even want to have happen. It just, if I'm a service and I go volunteer for a DDA meeting, I might not have gone to that meeting because of my depression or whatever. But then I suit up and show up because I'm obligated or committed to doing something. And at the end of the meeting, I'm going, oh, my God, I'm so glad I was at this meeting because I almost didn't come. Well, what got you there? Right. Being of service. You bring your body, your mind will follow. And then changes start happening regardless of wanting to or not wanting to. Can I also mention something about the 12 steps that's a little different than other 12 steps? Um, Even though it's about the chemical dependency or or, or the addictions, I should say. 
the first step talks about dual diagnosis. The last step talks about dual diagnosis, right? But it's focusing a lot on the addiction piece too. The five steps are focusing mainly on the mental health, which is why a lot of people come to our meetings. But if you go to the six step and stuff, it differentiates. If people are familiar with 12 steps, they know about the four step and the moral inventory. And the sixth step is really differentiating the differences between defects of character, which you should address and you can change over time or the mental health that mimics that, okay? So even in the 12 steps of DDA, it's talking about mental health because that was the missing link for me. I thought I was I was ashamed I couldn't make it in 12 steps. I was incapable of being honest with myself. That's what they tell you if you keep relapsing. And so I believed it. What I learned was that it was not a defective character. It was things that were happening because of my mental health that was interfering. So when you can differentiate the things that you can change and fix, right? And the things that are mimicking it or making it part of it because of the mental health, when you maintenance stuff around this thing and you get recovery from your addictions, you're looking at both pieces. And, and this is why it's so tough. Sometimes it's simple, but it's tough because even if you're on medications, it doesn't always fix, you know, you just don't do medications. Medications is just a part of it. If that's part of your deal, we're not pro or not negative, but if it is part of your deal, counseling and other methods are important that help manage that medication and or those behaviors because of the mental health and the medication. So this is all part of DDA. But the system, mental illness and addiction, it's still not fully integrated. Are providers recognizing when people come to them either mental health or addiction providers, are they, are they recognizing when people do come to them for help that they may be suffering one or the other or both? Well, again, from my experience, and I have a lot of it working in the business and being a man in recovery, um, I would definitely say, no, they're not. They're not identifying as well as it can. Are they doing a better job? Yeah. You know, we got COVID that changed a lot of things. You got that measure 110 the decriminalization addiction treatment initiative, you know, you got this money being funded there, you know, the CCO point two is being held more accountable for funding and allocating funds, you know, so the CCOs are doing a better job at data research and outcomes. They're looking at programs that are really hitting the marker about what's really happening and decreasing, you know, hospitalizations, criminality, all that good stuff. The CCOs are the care coordinators here in Oregon. Yeah, they're coordinated care organizations. We have contracts with three of them. But it's it's interesting when you look at the system in a whole from marginalized to equity and inclusion to services, you know, everybody's jockeying for this stuff or people are changing jobs or politics are happening. You look at the big scheme of things and why it's still a systemic problem and you kind of feel hopeless, right? Because here I am 30 years later knowing the stuff back then and still happening now. Where's the hope? Well, the hope really is um, nothing about us without us, right? You, you can't give up hope. You got to be that light in the darkness and do what you can where you can. Uh, I, I really do see things have changed a lot since where I was at, but there's such a huge need, huge need, huge need. Karen, I know you can testify to this. There's so many people that your heart just breaks for when they're trying to figure out how to get help. And DDA's a small part of that. It's not everything to everybody, but it can do some stuff and it does network out to other things. It embraces all. So we're just privileged to be able to be part of the, the hope 
in terms of what the system's not able to do all the time. And speaking of being part of the HOPE, uh, your work in the jails and prisons and around the world, talk about that. Well, around the world, we're in London, UK, um, Sweden. Like I said, we just translated our stuff into Dutch, South Africa uh, in Dutch, and, you know, the Latino community and, and Hispanic stuff. Um, but uh, the prisons, you know, right now, just jails. Uh, prisons have closed down everything. Um, I'm talking, actually, and negotiating, some, getting back in there. Uh, counties are giving us funding to get back in the jails. COVID is why. And there were some other issues around the prisons a while back. So that's where we're going to be. We're going to be in places where we're needed, um, in the institutions, um, hospitals, what they call here in Oregon, the Psychiatric Security Review Board, PSRB Housing. And outside in the community, um, DDA flourishes in these programs. I mean, it literally is sought after and intended very well. You know, after COVID and during COVID, you know, there's such a, a rise in mental health issues and people suffering with addiction. So what would you say to someone who is struggling out there right now? I would say this, everybody out there, the best thing you could ever do is ask for help. There's no shame. There's, there's no weaknesses in asking for help. What I'd say is to ask for help, to find the help that's needed, to accept your circumstances, not in terms of like, oh, you know, this is the way it's going to be, but in terms of tolerating it or being patient with it. So it's not so overwhelming of how you're going to be anxiety. So we know how important this is. We know how life-saving this can be. We know how how much families are damaged because of it. And, and we're, we're not a glum lot and we can meet people where they're at because we've experienced that. And uh, at the end of our meetings, we always put our foot in for a moment of silence for those that are still suffering because we know we're privileged to have that support group and have that guidance and have that love because there's so many people out there not. So if anybody listening to this needs help, please call us. You know, we got groups going every day of the week, twice, if not three times online. And we got them throughout, which you'll see on the website. Um, and if you're in a different country, if you go to our online meetings, you'll see people every day from Thailand, from St. Petersburg, Russia, Russia. You'll see people from UK. You'll see people from Canada. You'll see people from Switzerland. You know, and you'll see people all over the United States and the biggest presence is here in Oregon. Our, prior to COVID, we had over 4,000 attendants per month in the 34 of the 36 counties here in the state of Oregon. Doyle, can you talk about, you know, it's scary walking into a new support group like this. It is for anyone. So, yeah, so I understand how scary it is for somebody to walk into uh, social phobia is everybody. So if you have anxiety or other diagnosis attached to that claustrophobia, stuff like that, it's times a thousand, right? It's petrifying. It's like sweating profusely, heart racing. You mix up your words, you're feeling stupid, whatever. And DDA, people actually say that. You know, like, hey, I know you might be anxious. I know you might be claustrophobic. I know you're sweating profusely, you know, but you don't have to talk. And when you can talk, you will talk. I mean, there's crosstalk. You can raise your hand. You can talk more than once, you know, or you don't say anything. Like I said, we meet people where they're at. We actually identify the stuff. And just so you know, if somebody's claustrophobic and they say they're claustrophobic, it actually settles down that claustrophobia. If we need to open up doors, we need to open up windows, we need to go outside. Um, 
You know, there's things that we can do that if somebody's feeling that way, we actually identify. And you can kind of see it in their face or you can see it. But coming to a meeting, things just what I guess what I'm trying to tell people is it's just try it and see and know that you're you're not going to be forced to do anything you don't want to do. There's no wrong way of doing this. Um, just suit up and show up and check it out. I can't explain the meetings. I can just say, don't fear to go there. You're not going to be alone. There's no wrong way of doing it. And we understand the anxiety behind it. It's really about people helping people, understanding and moving through what's needed for us not to be controlled by this stuff, whether it's addictions and our mental health, which I see as both. But. Well, you've given me a lot of hope, Doyle. Thank you. And I hope that you have touched others out there who are struggling right now with uh, their mental health challenges, their addiction challenges. Please give your contact information one more time. Okay. So, and it's been an honor and a privilege to be here, Karen, and I just love the work that you're doing. Um, so, Dual Diagnosis Anonymous of Oregon, DDA, is ddainc.org, D-D-A-I-N-C dot O-R-G. Phone number is 503-222-6484. Doyle Smith, Executive Director of Dual Diagnosis Anonymous of Oregon. Thank you so much. This has been wonderful.